It is uh, great to be with you all this morning. I've been looking forward to this, and I think it's my third time to be blessed to participate in one of these workshops and to think about uh, the text of God's Word, especially with regard to background, uh, is an exciting thing. I'm kind of weird in that regard. One of my favorite classes to teach is Critical Introduction to the New Testament. Uh, this semester, we actually have a test this afternoon at 3. Uh, uh, we uh, have, I guess, about 32 students in there, and we spend some time talking uh, several W questions with regard to every book of the New Testament. Who wrote it? When was it written? Why was it written? To whom was that book written? Uh, what's the content of that book all about? And so to think some about Corinth this morning, I think, is a means to an end. Uh, We're not necessarily planning a Mother's Day sermon where we're going to get up and talk about the background of Corinth, but uh, I think it is important to explore the context of this particular book, and uh, I'm looking forward to this study with you. Uh, Andrew mentioned uh, we had someone generously give enough money to cover a number of lectureship books, and uh, three weeks ago we were involved in our 84th annual Bible lectureship. Uh, They allowed me to bring a case of those today and basically give them away. And so after our session today, there's a cardboard box back there on one of those chairs with about 25 lectureship books in that box. I wish I had more uh, for everyone, but if you didn't get a copy of that or would like a copy of the lectureship book, uh, those are free for the taking. And uh, we just wanted you to know about uh, how proud we are of that program. Uh, It's a growing program. Uh, This year, we set a record with regard to the number of kids and teens and Uh, members of the deaf community who participated in that, as well as our traditional guests. And we just have a lot to be thankful for. And again, thrilled to be able to spend some time thinking about Corinthians, uh, in particular, the historical context of the city of Corinth. I've only been there once. It's about 45 minutes from Henderson. They've got a great rib place. uh, But I'm hoping that by the end of this, you'll love that city as much as I do. No, I've been to the real Corinth once, Uh, It's been about 24 years ago, and I'll never forget traveling there with Brother Everett and Sister Elsie Hufford, who served as missionaries in Jerusalem for about 13 years, and uh, walking with them through the streets of Corinth was uh, like going back in time and truly changed the way I thought about these letters. And even if we've never been there, uh, or if we've never heard these things, I believe we can understand what God's communicating in this epistle, but how wonderful is it? For us to be able to think about the fact that the Bible was not first written to us. And it was written to people who lived in a different context, who had a way of life, perhaps had some cultural expectations like we do. And uh, because of that, perhaps heard what was spoken or read what was written in a way that was slightly different than we sometimes do. And so we're going to try to go to their town today. I'm borrowing that language from a textbook that I use in my Interpreting the Bible class at Fried Hardeman titled Grasping God's Word. Uh, There's a five-step methodology. And the first step is going to their town and understanding what that culture and language and time was like. And then we build the principalizing bridge and apply it in our town after we do a couple other things along the way. But before we get into this, I want to make a couple of statements that I think are hopefully will be helpful Uh, First of all, we, of course, recognize there are a number of contexts that apply as we spend time studying the Word of God. Today, we are going to particularly be thinking about historical context, and it's tempting when we talk about historical context to only think about chronology or archaeology or perhaps sociology as we explore the nature of particular people groups. But I think it's also important to note social context, social settings. What did it mean to live in an honor-shame culture? What did it mean to participate in patronage or reciprocity? What does it mean to protect the family in ways that perhaps we don't understand? I think there are a number of things that applied in that particular time and place that are helpful because when we pick up Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his second letter, right? That's what we call 1 Corinthians. But clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9, he had already written a letter to these Christians. And if we put together what happens in this corpus of letters and then what happens in Acts, it seems that Paul ends up writing four letters to this church that we know of, and he visits them at least three times. And those, so there's a setting historically, but there's also a literary setting. And if we had time today, we would think about the structure of epistles and rhetoric and the way that Paul chooses to communicate in the Corinthian correspondence that might be subtly different than what he says in Galatians or in Romans or other epistles. And then, of course, there's the theological context. 
And I think this is one that's sadly been overlooked by a lot of people. As we think about the character of God and the way that, well, let me show you a couple of words here that I think are important. This is not an idea that's original with me. I don't know that any of the ideas I'm sharing today are. Uh, But this came out of a book titled Paul the Apostle, written by Christian Becker many years ago. And one of the things I love about his approach to the epistles of Paul is he reminds us that although there are contingent circumstances that are behind each of the letters Paul wrote, when we talk about Galatians, the classic question is, who were the Galatians? Traditionally, that's been the Northern Galatian theory. Recently, more recently, many of us, including myself, think that Perhaps Paul's addressing those Christians that he visited on the first missionary journey in Acts 13 and 14 in cities like Lystra or Iconium or Derbe or Pisidian Antioch. So there are contingent circumstances, the Thessalonians wrestling over the question of death, uh, perhaps the pastoral letters where in Ephesus or Crete, Timothy and Titus are struggling with particular concerns uh, in those young churches, in those settings where in Ephesus, Paul spends three years in Acts chapter 19. And so when we study these letters, what we're doing today is very much contingent. It's tied to the context of Corinth, what they lived, what they expected. But I think it's important from a theological perspective to note, Paul was aware of a greater story. And wherever he was, wherever wherever he was speaking, whatever setting he was writing to, uh, that meta-narrative, that overarching story... A few years ago, uh, Longnecker, in a book, Narrative Dynamics and the Letters of Paul, uh, dealt with this question. Paul has a story of God, the story of Christ, his own story that we see him reflect on in Acts 9, Acts 22, Acts 26, but also throughout his letters, Galatians 1 and 2, Philippians 2 and 3, settings where we see very much that at the very core of Paul the Apostle is a conviction that Jesus is the Christ. And so whatever the circumstances, at his core, he's preaching the same gospel. He's sharing the same story. And he's inviting us to participate in that as well. And so a large part of what I want to do this morning is to suggest that while there were some things about ancient Corinth that were certainly unique and that show up, I think, implicit within 1 Corinthians, many of the things that we're going to talk about were applicable throughout the Mediterranean context. And at the very core of this, is the fact that wherever Paul was, whatever group he was addressing, he was calling them to participate in Christ, in the gospel. And so today, while we're thinking about contingent circumstances, may we not forget or neglect the coherent story of God in Christ that Paul reflects on wherever he goes. I think keeping those realities in balance is a very important part of properly exegeting the text of Scripture. So we must be careful not to make everything so occasional that we miss the universality or coherence of Paul's message. Uh, This is uh, difficult, but I think one of the things that we're going to see recurrent throughout the context of 1 Corinthians is that expression, as in all the churches. Now in chapter 14, we might ask exactly what is he talking about, because there's a bit of a variation involving where the punctuation might be in that particular passage. But in all three of these passages... Paul says the same thing, and I think it reflects this reality that he teaches the same thing wherever he goes. Now, in Corinth, we often will hear people talk about the temple of Aphrodite. We're going to address uh, how that's been a bit overblown, uh, I think, and there are some reasons for that. Uh, Was sexual immorality a problem in Corinth? Of course, but it was and is a problem everywhere. And so as Paul was addressing this contingent circumstance in Corinth, He reminds us in some very vivid ways that at his very core, he's preaching the same truth. He's sharing the same invitation to participate in Christ. On the other hand, and I think this is just as an important caution for us, uh, those of us who desire to properly, uh, rightly divide the word, we must be careful not to try to Catholicize. What does that mean? Well, the early scribes tried to Catholicize or universalize Paul's letters. That's why perhaps in Ephesians 1.1, some manuscripts cut out in Ephesus. Ephesians is a rather generic epistle. That's part of the reason why it's difficult to study. He knows these Christians really well. Spent three years there in Acts 19, as we've already mentioned. And so if you cut out in Ephesus in Ephesians 1.1, or you remove the words in Rome in Romans 1.7 or 15, and you chop off the end of Romans, suddenly these letters feel very universal or Catholic 
uh, in their appeal to the masses rather than a contingent circumstance. And so I think in our efforts to understand what's being communicated in these epistles, part of our struggle is wrestling with what was occasional to that particular setting and what's universal as a part of Paul's coherent core. And that balance is very important. 1 Corinthians 7, in my opinion, is the most difficult chapter in 1 Corinthians. And part of what we wrestle with there, especially in verses 25 through 35, is that question, what's the coming distress? What's this trial that's about to beset these Christians so that Paul urges them to remain as he is if they're unmarried or if they're married to stay in that particular relationship? Something seemed to be taking place in that setting And we know that in a variety of religious groups, 1 Corinthians 7 has been read in a number of ways. How do we take the contingent circumstance of that chapter and think about the coherent message of the gospel that the Apostle Paul spends so much time reflecting on, even in this particular letter? And so let's think about some places and let's think about some pictures. And I've tried to be very careful with this because, frankly, images of Aphrodite or Dionysius are... uh, are pretty offensive to some viewers. Uh, So I'm going to try not to do anything that's going to offend you, but I want you to see uh, that this was a place that was likely popular because of its strategic location. Uh, It was the crossroads of the ancient world, and yet uh, it's a place where Paul found an opportunity to speak to these Jews and Gentiles about the reality of how Christ could bring about transformation and how the gospel was bigger than any circumstance. And I I just want to go off on one more soapbox, and then I'll show you some pictures. I'm a little bit troubled when I hear someone say, things are worse now than they've ever been. Because the reality is, people who say that might not know a whole lot about the context in which these letters were written. Read Suetonius' The Twelve Caesars, and see how these Roman leaders spent their spare time. Uh, see what kinds of things these people were engaged in. Now, I'm not saying we're any better uh, because I think Romans 3, 10 through 18 makes it clear that all of us, regardless of our race, age, or gender, are in need of the blood of Jesus and are uh, damned without coming in t- contact with God's grace through our response in faith. And yet there's clearly uh, something going on here that is larger than the Corinthian context. It's the human condition. And God's ability by his grace and loving kindness to speak to that and offer us a salvation both then and now. So there are a lot of things I wonder. (laughs) When you open up 1 Corinthians, it's pretty clear that Paul already has a relationship with these readers. In addition to what he says about a prior letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9, we get a couple of other references like in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1 where Paul refers back to the fact that he had already visited them. And we, of course, know how in Acts 18, 1 through 18, uh, he visits this group of Christians. He goes to the synagogue first, which seems to be his methodology most of the time when there is a synagogue. We know, of course, in Acts 16, Philippi is an exception to that, perhaps because there aren't enough men, uh, Jewish men and their families, to constitute a synagogue. That number varies from 8 to 10 families, depending on what source you read. And yet there seemed to be, when you look at the severe or stern letter that's referred to in 2 Corinthians, and then, of course, 2 Corinthians itself and the discussion as to whether that severe letter is a part of 2 Corinthians, namely chapters 10 through 13 or not, there's an occasion that prompts Paul to write this letter. And yet when we start reading 1 Corinthians, we encounter a number of things that can be a bit confusing because even though they might apply In a number of different contexts, they seem to be reflective of the reality in Corinth in particular. What we read in 1 Corinthians 8 or 1 Corinthians 10, 18 through 25 about meat sacrificed to idols and how to respond to the pressure that some Christians were likely feeling as they walked through the meat markets. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 8, the reality of Christians taking one another to court, pagan worship and spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, head coverings, 1 Corinthians 11, 3 through 16, abuses of the Lord's Supper, what was happening there in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 28, and table fellowship, what that looks like, what that calls us to, the reality of uh, the Isthmian games or athletic events, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, baptism for the dead, the reliance on human wisdom, divisions that were apparent, sexual immorality, even among family members, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 
And so there are a number of things, and this is part of our struggle. It's like we're listening in to one end of the phone conversation and we're trying to construct to the best of our ability what we know about these Christians, their families, their enemies, their struggles, and yet all the while, hopefully, being called back to the reality that Paul's calling them to participate in the same gospel, the same relationship with Christ that we see him address in other epistles as well. Why was Corinth such a popular place? Well, while there are many things that help us to understand something more about what it would be like to explore Corinth in this particular historical context, we do know from Acts 18 that Paul spent a year and a half there. And we know from the Delphi or Gallio inscription likely when that took place. Probably the years 50 and 51 is when he stood before Gallio at the Bema. We'll look at a picture of that place in a few minutes. When Paul got to Corinth, he probably walked down the main street towards the synagogue where he spends time in Acts 18, 1 through 4, seeing crowds of people. Some historians have estimated that because of its ports and its walls and the main road that crossed the isthmus and allowed people to travel down into the Peloponnesian Peninsula through Corinth, that this city at that time was likely larger than Athens, which is difficult for us to imagine when we travel there today and we see the sprawling layout of a place like Athens, and then we go and and see even the new city of Corinth, pale in comparison to the urban setting that Athens now is. And yet there are so many things about this city that allowed it to be not only a place where people could behave in ways that were dishonorable to God, I could just imagine a, a slogan from the Corinthian uh, you know, welcoming committee, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth, you know, that kind of behavior. And yet this also provides Paul a great place to minister to people where he can impact the whole world. We see some of those names and places in Acts 18 and in 1 Corinthians. This is where he first meets Aquila and Priscilla. It's where, according to the narrative of Scripture, he also, because of the edict of Claudius in Acts 18 too which is an interesting story in and of itself. Claudius, on three occasions, expels Jews from Rome. And on this particular occasion, if we can trust what Suetonius, the historian who writes about the lives of the emperors, says about Claudius, he tells us that the Jews are expelled from Rome because of revolt over one called Crestus. Many historians think that that might be a reference to Christ. And so when you read Romans and you think about the reality of Paul writing to the world's largest city, the Christians who might have a Jewish foundation based on Acts 2 verse 10, where visitors from Rome are there on the day of Pentecost, they go back and yet because the Jews are run out of town by Claudius and they can't return until he dies uh, in around 54, uh, we know of course that when they return, Gentiles are now running uh, the show in those local congregations. And so why does Paul spend so much time in Romans talking about Romans 2.11, God doesn't show partiality, talking about the weak and strong, calling those Christians to defer to one another and give preference to one another in honor uh, and not boast of themselves. Well, in some ways, it's the same problem we have in Southern Galatia. It's the same problem we have in Corinth. It's the same problem we have today. People making honor claims based on their race or their age or their gender rather than on their participation in Christ Jesus. And yet I think the number one reason why Corinth is such an important and significant city, not only in the ministry of Paul, but in antiquity in the ancient Mediterranean context is because of its location. That's really the number one reason. Its location was prime in every way. And when we think about Paul's encounter here, let's talk about how you can get there by sea. Whichever way you go, to the east or the west, there's a port city available. I want to show you these and talk a little bit about them. Archaeological efforts in Corinth really began at the end of the 19th century, around 1886. And initially, these efforts are very scant. What we know to be true is that there was a Greek city at Corinth that's destroyed by the Romans in 146 B.C. This was a beautiful place, a perfect location, and so the Romans don't allow that rubble to lie there very long. Julius Caesar and Augustus are really both credited for rebuilding this city as a Roman colony in 44 B.C., just about 100 years after the Romans themselves have destroyed it. And I think, again, the number one reason they construct a city here is because of its prime real estate. It literally on this isthmus allows people to travel from north to south on one main road and allows two ports of entry. To the east, perhaps the more famous of the two, you have Cancrea uh, on the Sardonic side of the coast. 
Now, what's interesting about this particular report, of course, is we know in Acts 18, 18, Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla set sail from here. Uh, We also know Paul got a haircut there because he had taken a vow. Uh, We see later in Romans 16, 1, Phoebe, uh, I would suggest she was likely the patroness of Paul's letter to the Romans. And we, of course, see the way he describes her contribution and effort as a minister uh, with such glowing terms. She's also referenced there as being from Cancrea. Uh, this was literally 6.5 miles from Corinth. Uh, now, it's not as close as the port on the eastern side of the city, but it allowed Paul and other travelers to go anywhere from Corinth. Uh, perhaps like a university I know and love. From here, you can go anywhere. Uh, now, to the west, uh, there's another option, Lycaeum. Now, this is not as well-known a port city because we don't see it referenced as frequently in Scripture. And yet, for the Corinthians, this port was probably even more significant. The main reason was because the city walls actually went almost two miles towards the coast and encompassed this port city. The reality is that if you look at the city walls of Corinth, which are almost six miles in circumference, it's crazy to think about how large and long these walls were. In part, it's because these walls allowed travelers from Corinth to get to the port of Lycaeum without any concern of someone trying to overtake them. It allows trade. There are a number of things that the Corinthians are known for. In addition to textiles and ceramics, they're known for Corinthian brass or bronze, especially before the Romans destroyed this place in 146 BC. And so Corinthians had a level of protection. Those walls, uh, to get this number exactly, were 1.5 miles long and about three quarters of a mile apart. And they ran all the way to the port city of Lycaeum on this great location. And so if you wanted to travel east or west by ship, you were allowed that opportunity, which allowed for trade to flourish in Corinth. And it's likely true that in the fall of 51, we know that date pretty firmly as a part of Pauline chronology because, again, of the Delphi or Gallio inscription. We'll look at a picture of that in just a moment. We know that Paul set sail away from Corinth, probably out of this very port. Uh, We know Acts 18, 18, that that's where Cancrea is located. So perhaps this is where Paul comes in. But it allows us to see again why Corinth was such a mobile place. Now Priscilla and Aquila will eventually come back here. Uh, They stay in Ephesus while Paul returns to Antioch in Acts 18, 18 through 22. Uh, Later, Apollos is sent to Corinth in Acts 18, 24 through 19, 1. And again, we see the connections with Phoebe. There are many other names that we get in 1 Corinthians that perhaps aren't mentioned uh, in Acts. But for me, one of the most interesting is Sosthenes, who is nearly killed in Acts 18, 17. He's a leader of the synagogue. And of course, when uh, the opponents of Paul and the Christians there are so upset, they grab a hold of Sosthenes. And I find it uh, interesting, as Paul does elsewhere, like in the Thessalonians letter in Acts 17, 1 through 10, he spends three Sabbath days there. We know that Silvanus or Silas and Timothy are also with him. And so when Paul sends these letters to the Thessalonians, he sends them from Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Well, who does he send 1 Corinthians with? Sosthenes. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 1. who's also mentioned in Acts 18, 17. And perhaps even though some have questioned Luke's historical accuracy, I think it's interesting to see the way that Acts corresponds with 1 Corinthians and allows us to understand more about this particular time and place. We also meet others like Crispus, who's mentioned in Acts 18, verse 8, and 1 Corinthians 1, verse 14. Titus, Justice, Chloe's household, Gaius, the the household of Stephanus, and many others. And one of the most interesting things to me about the way Corinth is introduced in Acts 18 is the fact that the Lord himself in Acts 18, verse 10, maybe this is helpful as we think about the theological context of this letter, said he had, quote, many people in this city. And so what do we know about this city? I want us to look at some pictures. And again, as we think about the contingent circumstances of what was taking place in Corinth, maybe have a better understanding of what's taking place here in addition to the port cities uh, as we think about this location. The Lacoan Road is likely the road Paul walks into town on. There in the background, you see the Acre Corinth, which is nearly a third of a mile tall. We'll talk about the things that have legendarily been associated with the Acre Corinth. I doubt that many people wanted to make that hike 
Uh, when I was there 24 years ago, I was a little bit more spry than I am now. I didn't want to make that hike at that particular time. And so what activities were associated with this place? Well, this was a main thoroughfare. We know it had sidewalks. We know it had gutters, drainage systems. Uh, there were shops lining the sides of the road. Archaeologists have uncovered a number of different types of shops. That's a very difficult thing for us to always know without some kind of mosaic or placard to help us better identify what exactly was being sold in this place. We'll come back and think about that in just a moment. But this great wealthy crossword, cross, crossroads of the ancient Greek setting was a place that the Romans intentionally, okay, they destroyed the Greek city in 146 BC. They rebuilt a Roman colony in 44 BC. Guess how they repopulate it? They bring in freed slaves from all over the empire and resettle this place. These are people who've recently been liberated. They're allowed to be planted in a new setting where they and their creativity and passion for freedom create commerce opportunities. And so Corinth, even though it was destroyed in 146 and rebuilt in 44, by the time Paul walks into this city, it's only been reestablished as a Roman colony for a little bit over 100 years. This city was flourishing. It was flourishing because of trade. It was flourishing because of a number of uh, gods and goddesses who were patron goddesses of this area, of this city. It's flourishing because there's just enthusiasm and creative commerce taking place. This was a happening place to be. And even though there are some writers, especially from Athens, my opinion on this is that some Athenians really disliked Corinth for their wealth and prosperity. And so some of the things that are said about Corinthian women, uh, some of the things that are said about uh, Corinthian behavior, uh, perhaps would have been applicable in a number of Mediterranean cities and could have actually stemmed from some uh, jealousy. And I'll, I want to touch on that more in just a moment. So uh, according to Athanasius in the second century, Corinth has a population of 300 to 400,000, 460,000 slaves. Uh, its walls extend about six miles around the city. It's actually larger than Corinth based on this. A uh, Part of the reason why um, this is such an interesting place is because of what we know to be true about the Jews who were in this particular location. Again, in Acts 18, 1 through 4, Paul goes there. Uh, he finds this group of Jews and God-fearing Gentiles. Uh, he's received well. We, of course, know uh, what's said by the Lord about this setting and the opportunities that Paul has there. And with rare exception, again, Philippi, I've often wondered if Paul had made it to Spain as he had dreamed of in Romans 15. I'm not sure he ever does get there. How interesting would it have been to have thought about the way he approached from a methodological perspective, evangelizing a place like Spain, uh, where there would be new languages and new challenges and perhaps not the uh, scattered Jewish synagogue settings that he's accustomed to that we see uh, throughout the book of Acts. But the methodology that Paul used in Corinth is very much like what we see in other places. Uh, the part of the difficulty with the archaeology of this particular setting is we know uh, we have the ruins of a synagogue, but it's likely not Unlike Capernaum, where you actually see foundation stones that go back to the time of Christ, the remains of the synagogue in Corinth are not quite that promising, but they do confirm for us a Jewish population still present many years later and allow us to see that as was true in a lot of places, especially cities like Alexandria and Antioch, uh, there's a large Jewish settlement that serves as a foundational place for Paul's ministry to begin and thrive. Now, we've talked about trade. If you go to Corinth now, you're going to see this. I'm going to get on a bridge and cross over the Corinthian Canal. This was finished by some French builders in 1893. Uh, it's an amazing uh, sight to see these ships crossing a four and a half mile uh, canal to avoid having to go all the way around the Peloponnesian Peninsula as they sail from east to west to the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, but before that, there was the Doilkas, the Doilkas. Now, here's what we know about this particular road. Uh, as the Corinthians exported materials like their brass or bronze, as they built ships, as they made ceramics, they needed a way to figure out how to get merchandise or perhaps even uh, small boats across that three and a half to four and a half mile stretch of land. And so they made a road. And if you look carefully, this isn't just any road. 
It varies in size depending upon how close you are to an urban setting, much like our interstates allowed them to have access to this stone road. But it also has these grooves in it that would have allowed for cargo vessels and small ships. Again, the road ranges from 11 to 19 feet wide. And we know that it's used until the 9th century. Again, uh, we're blessed now to be able to pass through the Corinthian Canal. I've always wanted to sail through it, but no one's allowed me to do that yet. But uh, we know that this was... Uh, One of the ways that the Corinthians took advantage, not only of the ports that were on either side to the east and west of this particular setting, but they were able to bring merchandise and cargo and small ships across the dual costs. And uh, as a way of generating commerce, uh, saw this as an opportunity to invite people into their city. Now, perhaps the thing that we've heard preached the most and what we've wanted to share the most about ancient Corinth, uh, is something like this. To be a Corinthian was to be a fornicator. This was like the Las Vegas of the the Greco-Roman setting, right? This was a place where uh, there were thousands of prostitutes roaming the streets. Uh, Well, there is some evidence, some literary evidence, that Greeks characterized Corinth as a place of fornication and whoremongers. Uh, Plato, for example, describes... Uh, prostitutes as Corinthian girls. But I think as we consider the role of trade and the way that the gospel was advanced in Corinth, we should be really careful not to make it sound like Corinth was the only place that struggled with this particular sin, sexual sin. Uh, And we also should be careful not to overstate something that I think has been disproven about the nature of the temple of Aphrodite itself. So I'd like for us to take a little bit of time to talk about what took place on the Acre Corinth, uh, what take, took place in worship to uh, Dionysius, the god of wine, or Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Uh, was sexual sin a problem there? Of course it was. It's been a problem everywhere. But here's what we know. Even though uh, Strabo, who is the one who is probably the first to really theorize about the expansive nature of the Aphrodite temple and the thousand cult prostitutes that worked off of the the Acre Corinth, we know that there were male and female prostitutes employed in this city and elsewhere throughout the Greco-Roman setting. Uh, But here's what we know. The temple of Aphrodite on top of the Acre Corinth measures 33 by 52 feet. And if there are quarters for prostitutes to be housed, they're not being housed on the Acre Corinth Uh, Now, it's possible that they're using outdoor spaces or tents. I don't want to speculate on that anymore. It's highly possible that they're walking among the city, which is down here far below the Acre Corinth. Uh, That's where their business is thriving, and that's where they're being housed. Uh, But the the foundation of the temple itself, and part of the problem on the Acre Corinth is, over the years, many fortresses have been built there. Uh, You can really see no more evidence of a temple there other than just the foundation the foundational structure. So we know something about its size. We know very little else about this, but the temple itself wasn't large enough for a thousand prostitutes. Uh, In addition to that, the Acre Corinth is a hard place to climb. There's no evidence of prostitutes on the mountain. Uh, It seems that Strabo's claims were exaggerated. And when we talk about worship of Aphrodite, of course, any religion that uses sex or alcohol as a way of worshiping or giving uh, offerings to the Lord is going to be a very popular religion in Paul's world and in our world. Um, Was there a temple to Aphrodite? Yes. Was cultic prostitution a problem there? Emperor worship, a number of the other things associated with paganism, were those things a problem in Corinth? Yes. Can that tie into 1 Corinthians 6 when Paul's describing our being a temple of God and needing to be set apart? Certainly. Was Corinth worse than all the other places around it, including Athens, with regard to sexual sin? I'm not convinced of that. I think that sexual sin was a problem there. There were prostitutes. There were, and this might even be a bit shocking, I think worship to Dionysius might have been even more sexual than worship to Aphrodite. Um, I'm not going to put pictures up of this, but the symbol of Dionysius, I've got a picture of him here from Facebook, his profile picture. But the symbol of Dionysius, the god of wine, uh, was a phallic symbol. 
And so whenever there were parades to honor this particular god, uh, there's actually literary evidence of couples um, having sexual relationships with one another on uh, arid ground, thinking that Dionysius, the god not only of wine, but of anything that gives life, fertility included, that by having sex in an arid place on the ground, it might help grass grow there. It would help that piece of ground become more fertile because Dionysius, the pagan god of fertility and all uh, life-giving fluid, we'll leave it at that, would allow these people to thrive and to increase. And so paganism then and now has a great appeal to it. Think about... um, what Paul says about gender relationships in Corinthians, namely 11 and 14, and, in, and to the Ephesians, in Ephesians 5 and in 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15. Was there more pressure on Christian women in Corinth and Ephesus because of worship centers to Aphrodite or Dionysius? I think they certainly were under a lot of pressure. This isn't on the script, but I'll, I'll go there anyway. I think that... Uh, in some ways, they were able to see egalitarianism at work uh, in some governmental roles, in cultic prostitution, uh, and what it seems Paul's calling them to, going back to creation, is something that was countercultural even then. I don't think it was contingent only upon worship to pagan deities in those particular settings, but perhaps the contingent circumstances in these particular settings made it all the more urgent. Just like in our settings, if there are tragic circumstances or if there's something uh, that we're considering in a local vote or uh, if there's something that has happened that we need to be reminded of what God says about that particular topic, I think there's a reason why it seems Christians in Corinth and Ephesus are given more instruction about this than Christians are in other settings. But it seems to me that even in 1 Corinthians 14, you have the possibility of Paul acknowledging this is something he taught in all the churches. But paganism (laughs) was, of course, a problem in Corinth. But Corinth isn't the only place this is a real problem in. There's also worship to Demeter. Um, His worshipers were uh, just as uh, full of optimism and enthusiasm. And so when you see (laughs) these two imperatives, these two commands, flee immorality, flee from idolatry, Are those particular to the Corinthian context? Well, yeah. I mean, these Christians are struggling with these issues. They're being pressured to worship idols and to enjoy sensual behavior. But this would have been applicable in a universal sense to Christians everywhere and still is. And so I think part of our difficulty as we're preaching Corinthians is to note, yeah, there were particular pressures that these people were under, but these pressures were applicable to everybody in the Mediterranean context, and they're still applicable to us. Which, to go back to the bridge-building metaphor, uh, perhaps allows us an opportunity to see how truly uh, it's not a very wide step to cross the river and build a principalizing bridge in the epistles of Paul as compared to some other literature in Scripture. And I'm going to have to speed up and give some time for questions here as well. Let's go through some pictures. This is a... Asclepius, the god of healing, this was a, a, uh, a medical facility that was tied to pagan ritual and practice. Uh, when I went there 24 years ago, uh, they took us into one of the four rooms in the Corinth Museum, and we saw these, uh, these ceramic plast or cast of body parts, a lot of arms and legs and some other organs there. Um, and I asked the god rather naively, what's this about? Well, when you had a broken arm, you would go into the temple, the sanctuary of Asclepius, the god of healing, and you would present a cast of your arm for healing or a cast of your leg. Uh, What is evidenced here would have likely been true in a lot of places, but it was, I guess, the overwhelming thing I saw that particular day, uh, rampant venereal disease, a lot of people in need of healing because of uh, things associated with sex, sex, perhaps outside the context of marriage. Uh, given the circumstances in Corinth. So there is a bit of tension here. I I hesitate to make it sound like Corinth is the only place sexual sin is a problem, but there's no doubt sexual sin was a problem in Corinth. And I do think its locale, 
the transient nature of communities that pass through this area as associated with trade and, and perhaps even uh, worship of the emperor. Uh, we know the Temple of Apollo, which is probably the most impressive structure you'll see if you visit ancient Corinth today. Seven of the original 38 columns are still standing. Uh, this was built in the 6th century B.C. And again, was another opportunity for the Corinthians to show pride in their worship in their gods, in their patronage. Uh, We know along the Agora, there were a number of shops. Let me read through these quickly. Uh, There were bronze mirror shops. I wonder if 1 Corinthians 13, 12 could be associated with that. Uh, There were brass shops, bronze working establishments. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. There were meat markets. uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 25. There were butcher shops. There was a gymnasium. There was a theater. Lots of beautiful porches and fountains around the city. Uh, I've got an overlay of... uh, This came out of the Corinthian Museum booklet of what ancient Corinth might have looked like. I'll just pass this around while we're talking. It wasn't very easy for me to put on the slides. But what you'll see as you look at that is this was a beautiful place filled with opportunity, filled with commerce, filled with uh, lots of people who were devoted to the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods, who were excited, who were adventurous, who were generating new commerce with their enthusiasm. A number of these freed slaves obviously participating in that. Uh, We also see this in Corinth. This was discovered in April of 1929. Uh, It's a part of a 62-foot square area, uh, and this is a two-by-seven-foot stone, uh, which is similar to another inscription across town. But the reason this one's so significant is it describes the patronship of Erastus, who is mentioned in Romans 16, verse 23, and likely connected to the occasion that Paul wrote Romans, I would argue around 54 to 56 AD, uh, from Corinth. And so uh, I remember when we were there, there were these little red flowers blooming all over the place. And our tour guide was so good, he wanted to sell us stuff all the time. I remember we stopped at a little place and they were trying to sell us pieces of the cross. That was kind of weird. And, but in Corinth, there were these little red flowers with a black cross in the middle. And he said, those are Jesus flowers. That's what I remember when we were standing here looking uh, at the Erasmus stone. There's also Gallio's Bema, Acts 18, verse 12, where there was a platform for a speaker who could give proclamations or hear proclamations read from key leaders. Uh, citizens could stand before these ranking officials. This is the key for dating Paul, Pauline chronology. Uh, we know that Lucius Ionis Gallio was proconsul from June 51 to May 52 because of this inscription. The Delphi or Gallio inscription, which is especially relevant in Acts 18, the Thessalonian epistles, uh, and the dating of the emperorship of Claudius, who again, Acts 18 verse 2, is responsible for expelling the the Jews from Rome. One more set of pictures, and then we'll open this up for some conversation. The Isthmian Games, second only to the Games of Olympus, which we now know as the Olympic Games. Every other year, every two years in the spring, and the Corinthians administered as the city that was president of the Isthmian Games uh, this, by, this, this uh, every two-year festival. Uh, it was a great opportunity, second only to the Games at Olympia. Uh, this was a time not only to celebrate athleticism, but more importantly, to stir up national consciousness, uh, namely towards Hellenistic thought and influence. This would have been devoted to Poseidon. Uh, This was a place where emperor worship would have been uh, the rallying cry. Uh, Some have suggested maybe this is what drew Paul to Corinth. An opportunity knowing that not only is this a place where commerce and trade and people are coming because of the port cities and the road that runs across this isthmus down to the Peloponnesian Peninsula. I think Paul just found it a wonderful opportunity, especially with God's helping him know that he had many people in that city in Acts 18.10, to be in a transient setting where there was plenty of sin, but there also was plenty of opportunities to tell others about the grace of God, inviting them to to participate in the gospel. Maybe one of the applications here is um, the world's no better now than it was then, but the gospel is just as good now as it was then. And we have an opportunity to speak the truth to some settings that are really dark and really destructive uh, to our faith. Let me read you something, and then I want to close with these last two slides, and we'll open this up for some discussion. Lyle Vanderbrock, in a book titled Breaking Barriers, The Possibilities of Christian Community in a Lonely World, 
published in 2002, said this about the Corinthian context. Each of the community problems Paul needed to address grew out of the Corinthians' inability to let the gospel message fully reshape their Gentile Greco-Roman lives, whether because they misunderstood that message or because they rejected it outright. They were Hellenists through and through, and this eschatological cross-centered body-affirming Jewish sect called Christianity demanded that they enter another theological and ethical world. It's no surprise that these residents of Corinth would seek rhetorical wisdom, be unconcerned with immorality and the preservation of the body, be infatuated with asceticism and spiritual development, and preserve the distinctions between rich and poor. The Corinthians were simply trying to be Christians with a minimal amount of social and theological disturbance. The problem of syncretism. The problem of being in the world and of the world. The problem of speaking truth in a setting where it's so easy to blend in. I think historical and literary context are helpful. They are not the magic bullet. They're not going to answer every question. In fact, they might raise more questions. But I think they can prevent some embarrassment. I use this passage as an example because uh, last November I was in a discussion with a brother who was uh, talking about the theology of the treasury and using 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2 to suggest that uh, when Christians give from the treasury, we can only do so to support other Christians. I think that even though I've perhaps been just as inconsistent at times with my application of this passage for me, it was a reminder that the way I read Scripture sometimes is more a reaction to 20th century American modernization than anything Paul in the world of Corinth would have ever thought of. And so why, when we read 1 Corinthians 11, 23-28, are we struck by this difference in discussing the way that they were wrestling with unity around the Lord's table And there's nothing being said there about the way it's served. Well, there's likely some distance in terms of history and language and culture. And so I think as long as we are humble and we desire to better understand that world. I remember in a Romans grad class a couple of years ago, we were reading Romulus and Remus, the legend of Rome, and talking about Claudius. We were reading Suetonius. And one of the students asked a sincere question, can I understand Romans without ever reading this other stuff? Well, well, yeah, that's the power of the word of God. But the James 3, 1 principle, uh, as a teacher, I want to do due diligence. I want to dig, not because that means I'm going to have all the answers. I may actually have more questions, but it will hopefully allow me to avoid some mistakes that I've made and others have made as we have... Um, overstood the text, read our context into that world. Um, Perhaps it's a humbling reminder that the Bible wasn't first written to us. And the people who first received this letter weren't 21st century Americans wrestling with the problems of a democracy that we face. And yet they were human beings who struggled with sin and were being invited by Paul to participate in the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ. And so are there contingent circumstances then and now? Of course there are. But thank God for the coherency of his message and the everlasting nature of his call to respond to the invitation of Christ. As together we stand and sing. No. uh, (laughs) So I want to open this up. I think I may have gone too long. That's a surprise. But uh, we've got a little bit of time for some questions, maybe 15, 17 minutes, something like that. And I know it's awkward. Maybe it's like an auditorium class where somebody rattles on for 45 minutes and then says, any questions? And we're all like, no, just trying to wake up. Uh, But we'd love to talk about this, not claiming to have all the answers, but we'd love to talk about any of this. Yes, sir. Yeah, there's some speculation that this could go back to numbers and the bronze serpent. 
looking on that standard and living. But I think in our setting, uh, the fact that the staff of Asclepius is still being used as a symbol for medical practice is a way to connect this for our audiences. Uh, but the short answer is, I don't know where this originated. I'd like to think with the Lord in numbers, but uh, that would be a speculative connection to try to draw with Asclepius. Kind of like the mystery religion stuff, I think a lot of that gets overblown. But we need to pay attention to it uh, because their understanding of the gods and the pantheon uh, certainly, I think, impacts the way Paul talks about this, not only in Acts 17, but also uh, in his correspondence with the Corinthians. Thoughts, comments, questions? Will? Yeah. That's a great question. Uh, I think part of the challenge here is the transient nature of Corinth, especially in Paul's day. I mean, Roman colonies are going to thrive because of the Isthmian Games, but it's like Jerusalem in that there's a swelling of population during certain seasons. Uh, Even travel. um, Lionel Casson wrote a book, uh, Travel in the Roman World. And it was an eye-opening book for me because it reminded me that there were seasons of travel. Um, you don't sail certain times of the year, and you certainly don't travel by land. And that's probably why Paul ends up spending so long in some places. It's just simply because of the limitations of travel. So uh, Joachim Jeremiah's Jerusalem in the time of Jesus talks about Jerusalem population questions. Uh, I think that it's comparable even looking back to the numbering of the Israelites in the Exodus. Uh, We can speculate based on some numbers that we see here or there. Uh, I don't have any reason to think that the Greek city was larger uh, in 146 when it was destroyed than it was in AD 50 when Paul visited there. Again, because of its location, because of its economic prowess, um, because of the Isthmian Games. But I can't give you a population figure, and I don't really think there's an accurate count uh, period historically. Yeah. Well, it's like counting textual variants. Um, I think that Christian apologists and critics of Scripture throw numbers around, but without talking about why those numbers matter, numbers are just numbers. And oftentimes they're used to overinflate arguments. So what I say about uh, Corinth with regard to Aphrodite and Dionysius is um, there's a lot of sexual sin, but it's sexual sin tied to service to a pagan deity. And so I think that does change the flavoring of that a bit from what we're talking about, uh, where, you know, what Paul says in uh, Romans 3 about, or in, uh, actually I was thinking about James 1, how when we're tempted, we're not tempted by God, we're led astray by our own lust. That's the God we're worshiping, you know, in that particular context. And really I think that's true for the Corinthians as well. I'm just a bit hesitant to make it sound like Corinth was the only place this was a problem. And they were just so overwhelmed by pagan prostitutes that they couldn't do anything by their own free will to be pure. Um, you know, Paul calls on men and women to live holy lives. Uh, he calls on these women to exhibit behavior that I don't know that their pagan neighbors would have necessarily been interested in demonstrating to the same measure. Uh, so I think the call then and now was countercultural for all Christians, regardless of race, age, or gender. I'd also explore the possibility of a senatorial plebeian, or excuse me, senatorial equestrian, plebeian, freedman, slave levels of society uh, with an honor-shame pyramid where whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, uh, you have a rank, much like the caste system in India, and you're not going to break out of that rank unless 
you are born with a certain level of honor or you acquire a certain level of honor. And uh, Paul's message in 1 Corinthians and throughout his epistles was we flip that honor-shame pyramid on its head. And rather than Caesar or the high priest being at the tip of the pyramid, you invert it and you are the servant. Uh, so the, the, le- the last will be first and the first will be last. It's a very countercultural call. And uh, my appeal would be that when we teach First Corinthians, we also be countercultural. I think it's easy to be comfortable in, in this, and I'm not sure we always should be. Yes, sir. You mentioned yeah. a couple of times the honor shame culture. And I'm curious, in First Corinthians five, you know they have a situation where yeah. if you expel a person from amongst your group, even though Christianity may not have been an accepted thing in Corinth or a big deal, it's still a shame for your group to reject you uh, and then be yeah. kicked out. And of course, it's very difficult today to practice this fellowship because they just go to another church. But in Corinth, they did not have necessarily the ability do that do you think that that culture would view a person expelled from a christian group as the same as they would be expelled from any group did the shaming process function you think in the same way i think our closest parallel would be uh the situation in john 9 or perhaps even in the context of matthew's church where uh, being put out of the synagogue was a real threat um and since uh, prior to the end of the first century, a lot of people would have had difficulty taking a scalpel and separating Christianity and Judaism in a clear fashion. Um, it would probably have the same social effect as being cast out of the synagogue. Um, I personally think, in the context of Matthew and Luke, that's part of and John, especially Matthew and John, that's part of why in Matthew 23, uh, I'm going to get on a soapbox. I'll try to be quick, but. When you're reading the gospel accounts, it's not just about what Jesus said and did. It's about what John or Matthew's audiences needed. And I think we can read, like in John 3, is it Christian baptism? Well, that's not what Jesus talked to Nicodemus about, but readers in 85 AD certainly were thinking about Christian baptism in John 3 and the Lord's Supper in John 6. I don't see how post-resurrection you could avoid thinking about that. So perhaps in John 9 or other passages... Christians who were receiving these um, gospel accounts, if you will, were being shown how Jesus handled some of the same circumstances that they were now having to face. And I would say 1 Corinthians 5 would be comparable. We'll let Dr. Barrier address that even further later today. Okay, anything else? Appreciate you all asking these good questions. Yes, sir. Yeah, certainly early on, the evidence suggests uh, when the Roman colony is established in 44 B.C., uh, I think the numbers I've seen, and again, DeWill's question, numbers are, are uh, speculative, 300 to 460,000. Um, the way that Rome expanded, it allowed people to be redistributed, and uh, they gain a natural buffer and the natural materials that come out of these regions that are conquered, like in Spain, and so it was a convenient way for the imperialistic motives of Rome in expanding their territory to resettle people. And Corinth is a, a natural place for that to happen, not only because of the way it's resettled, but because of its location. Um, I think if you're looking for a, a job or an opportunity to start again or maybe even to uh, exchange slaves in that context, Corinth would have been a place... That kind of activity would be ideal. The problem is archaeology doesn't doesn't answer that fully, but social sciences, I think, help us on that quite a bit. Countercultural and uh, Philemon sixteen is where I think Paul helps us on that when he calls Onesimus a brother. Yes, sir. Well, we know Nero visits there. Uh, that's actually a part of the story, the background of the amphitheater being expanded and upgraded. Uh, Nero's dates were 54 to 68, probably after Paul, obviously, given Nero is likely the one who kills Peter and Paul. And it's believed Anthony did too. The problem with Anthony is we're talking about the triumvirate that um, 
when we're talking about Julius Caesar and Augustus reestablishing the Roman colony. It's just a question of when all that happened. But there is some literary evidence to suggest he, he did. And, and if you're traveling east to west, it makes sense that you go through Corinth. Uh, unless you're traveling to Carthage or North Africa and you just avoid the Peloponnesian Peninsula altogether. Personally, uh, for what it's worth, I view well, a lot of what we did for today the same way I, I view Greek. I, I love teaching Greek. I, I do. Um, but I don't use it in a way that's flashy. I don't uh, refer to it much at all in preaching directly. I think there's a place for that. But I view um, a lot of the things we've talked about today as being either Bible class material or behind the curtain. And I just view it as a way to better understand their world so that an application I'm striving to make isn't more a modernized American application devoid of any first century Greek cultural uh, context. And so I keep a lot of this behind the curtain, but I think it's helpful. Uh, My course evaluations for Crit to the New, I always get some of those. We didn't even use the Bible. Well, we did some. (laughs) And uh, mainly variants, but I think uh, the story around the Bible matters too. And if we're going to help people walk with Paul in Corinth, we might be blessed to spend some time thinking about what it was like to be a Corinthian, right? All right, well, thank you all. Enjoyed this time together and uh, looking forward to a great day getting into the text. So appreciate it. Make sure to grab a lectureship book too. Andrew?